we are helping Rolls-Royce predict engine failures in a test cell. Uh, and when Rolls-Royce said, this capability is great, it's gonna save us millions, but we don't want to disrupt the way our operators work. We said, no problem. Uh, we are going to integrate the model with the software your operators already use. So when the model predicts a failure, it sends a script out that automatically stops the test and the operator in the application that they've been using for the last 10 years just gets a pop-up that reads, test has been paused, anomalies have been detected in these metrics, please replace this part and restart your test. Just that easy. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura McIntosh. And I'm Joseph Nother. Of Note is powered by Scribble, South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. Join us as we talk with some of the most inspirational entrepreneurs, leaders, and scientists across the state as they share their experiences with invention, growth, funding, culture, and creativity. It's a great indulgence to be able to meet and mix it up with a serial entrepreneur. Their optimistic outlook, the confidence powered by a cultivated self-awareness and a charismatic energy that's infectious, inspiring, and compelling. And then you get into their story. It's like listening to the origin story of a superhero, a figure born out of a reaction to adversity, an individual armed with a passion and conviction about how the world ought to be, based on observations about what works and what doesn't. Rick's story is no different. Listening to him talk about his early career at IBM, his observations about how to improve things, his successes and struggle in the corporate world, and his eventual ascent as an entrepreneur, which brings us now to our conversation today. Rick is the president and CEO of Delta Bravo, a company bringing predictive AI to industrial manufacturing. But this isn't his first rodeo. He brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to this venture based on two decades of leading startups to successful exits alongside experience with private equity groups. He was featured on national television network A&E's American Entrepreneur Series, and now he joins us on Of Note to share his thoughts on innovation. My name is Rick Opetisano. I am the CEO of Delta Bravo Artificial Intelligence. Delta Bravo is an industrial strength predictive analytics platform. Uh, we call it industrial strength because we deal with the biggest, most complex data sets you could possibly create. Uh, and those are most often found in a manufacturing setting. Uh, and so our customers are, you know, your, your, your tier one automotive, big agricultural manufacturers, uh, food science companies. Uh, and we help them take the data that they create and use it in a more productive way. We help them turn that data into predictive uh, algorithms that help them anticipate problems uh, in quality uh, or problems in uptime with machines uh, and cure those problems before they actually affect the final product. There's more to Delta Bravo than gaining efficiencies in manufacturing, however. Yeah, so Delta Bravo fills a, a market space with companies that are generating tons and tons of data. Um, and they're overwhelmed. They're not just overwhelmed from a decision-making standpoint, they're also overwhelmed from a system standpoint. Uh, and so the big differentiator for Delta Bravo, there's two of them. The first uh, is that we are built using a technology called Kubernetes, which allows us to deploy and scale across any combination of infrastructures. This allows the customer to take this capability and scale it out globally in the way that makes the most sense from a cost perspective and from a technology management perspective. The second big differentiator for Delta Bravo is the way that we integrate with our customers. So when you think about working with a customer of any kind, they make a purchase decision because you are making it easier for them to do something they need to do. 
So instead of making a customer learn a new piece of software or force them to accept and manage a new tool, what we do is we integrate with their processes. So Delta Bravo is built to take machine learning models and integrate them into how a customer is already working. And when you think about manufacturers, they're so process driven as it is, if you come to a manufacturer and say, hey, I've got this wonderful capability for you to use. However, you're gonna to have to change your process in order to use it. It's usually gonna be a hard pass, right? Because they're so process driven, why? How could we possibly do that? That would make us inefficient. So with Delta Bravo, we actually take a look at the systems they're using and integrate our models via API into those systems. Efficiency, and it's scalable and simple. But Rick didn't land on advanced manufacturing right out of the gate. Where and how to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence powering these predictions was a challenge. The hardest part of the journey was really finding product market fit. Uh, when you think about machine learning and AI and all the different use cases that you could apply, I mean, they're, they're endless. Um, anything from you know, predicting financial fraud or uh, uh, transaction anomalies uh, down to emergency room visit volume or how the weather is gonna affect the staffing at the local Starbucks. Uh, there's a million applications for prediction. Um, and so for us, uh, we struggled with that at first because as a, as a small business, you tend to think, think about not leaving money on the table. You tend to think about survival. You know, what do we need to do right now in order to make it to tomorrow? Uh, and so for those first couple of years, we vacillated um, and we, you know, we did a bunch of different use cases um, and we found that it was very difficult for us to scale if we were going to be horizontal. Uh, in order for us to scale, we needed to identify a particular market segment we had to look at the other solutions in that market segment and figure out a way to innovate and to fill that gap. And so for us, we found that competitive solutions, like the ones you'd find from Google or Microsoft or Amazon, while they're fantastic, they're really built for generic scenarios. And so we decided to purpose build Delta Bravo to address scenarios that weren't generic, scenarios that required an extra layer of customization that the big players in the game wouldn't necessarily provide. And so we started to look at that space and we said, okay, where, where does that apply? And when you think about what we do, uh, the value of machine learning and AI is predicated on the value of prediction. So we thought to ourselves, where is prediction priced at a premium? It's priced at a premium when you're predicting risk or predicting waste. What industry finds predicting waste or predi predicting risk a premium item. So we thought about that and it was manufacturing. They will, they will, that is a premium situation. If you can help a manufacturer predict risk, predict and reduce waste, predict and reduce a negative quality outcome, that's a premium item. That's a competitive differentiator. Uh, so that's why we decided to start focusing on manufacturing. Then we realized how diverse and complex the data that manufacturers produce can be. Um, this is data that's coming off a factory floor from 15, 20, 30 different types of systems uh, being collected every two seconds, five seconds, every hour. Data that's coming in in foreign languages. Data that's affected by operators. It is insanely complex. Uh, and so we said, geez, what a great place, you know? Um, there's, a, there's a high barrier to entry. It's going to take a particular type of system in order to execute this. The big players in the game are not going to bite this off. Um, and the manufacturer needs it in order to compete. Um, and we also had, a, we looked at American manufacturing in general, and we thought to ourselves, in order for ma American manufacturing to, to, to thrive and flourish, they're gonna have to incorporate this capability. They're gonna have to get ahead because it's harder than ever to find people, and they're just awash in data. 
how are they going to use this existing investment they've made in collecting all this information to propel them to some level of competitive advantage. And we, sit, we decided that that was the spot for us. We decided that you know, working with American manufacturers to give them this capability uh, would help us take a section of the entire economy and help boost it. Prior to landing on manufacturing, Rick bounced around different industries such as finance, healthcare, retail, and more, trying to figure out how to help them use their data. He found that manufacturing invested in collecting and leveraging data more than any other industry. It was all about creating value. When you think about an addressable market, it's kind of a phantom concept, all right? Um, so, you know, an addressable market is only as good as the value that your solution creates for that addressable market. So if you have a huge addressable market and your solution creates an extra dollar of value, you know, you're probably going to be limited, right? Because a dollar is not, not worth that much, really, right? Now, if you look at your addressable market and your solution creates a million dollars in value, now that's a whole different story. And so that's what we, we so we, we, we looked at manufacturing as a segment. Um, we identified, um, and here's the other side of it too. Once we discovered manufacturing, um, we looked around us at the resources that we had here in South Carolina. Uh, and very quickly, we discovered the South Carolina Manufacturing Extension Partnership. Uh, these folks are experts in manufacturing, experts in process, um, experts in how the business runs, experts in the finance of manufacturing. And when we sat down with them and explained the capability of our technology, uh, they saw a wonderful fit. They said, you guys can help us execute five key use cases in manufacturing. Predictive maintenance, predictive quality, scrap reduction, predicting inventory movement, and increasing throughput. That is what drives a manufacturing business. And you guys can help us take that capability to manufacturers in South Carolina and give them competitive advantage over manufacturers in other states or countries. Uh, and so once we started, you know, once we tapped into that, once we tapped into the South Carolina Manufacturing Extension Partnership, we rapidly gained the maturity uh, through their resources to start to articulate and communicate our value to manufacturers. Um, and once we were able to do that, the next step was getting a customer. We worked with the South Carolina MEP and we identified Rolls-Royce as a potential customer. And when we sat with them, they were really into the possibility. However, the solution was still very young uh, and the company was still very young. So there was a degree of liability uh, for the customer. So South Carolina MEP reached out to the SCRA and SC Launch and they helped us secure what's called a demo grant. Um, the demo grant helped us deploy our solution at Rolls-Royce with a little less financial liability for Rolls-Royce. And so within that, we were able to deploy the solution um, in a way where we, you know, we, you know, we were able to uh, do this uh, without financial downside. Um, they were able to deploy the solution without financial risk. Uh, and very quickly, um, it became obvious that the solution was a good fit. Uh, and then since then, we've uh, extended the solution uh, to predict engine failures for every version of engine that they make in that facility. And we're going above and beyond that uh, into to other applications with Rolls-Royce as well. So Rick has really found 
an amazing relationship with the South Carolina Manufacturing Extension Partnership or in government, we love every acronym possible. So the SCMEP or you're sometimes here as just the MEP. Um, and essentially, you know, they are they're actually considered a sister organization, close uh, partner to the Department of Commerce. And sort of to oversimplify their mission, I mean, they are they wake up every day and think about all of our manufacturing and the suppliers and how to basically help keep them competitive. Um, but more, uh, more, I'll say officially, they are a private nonprofit group that serves as a proven resource for South Carolina businesses, providing like a broad range of strategy, sort of support. And of course, um, you know, Rick has been a, a, actually a really great use case for them that I'll dive into here in a minute. But, you know, SMEP, they're an affiliate of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or the NIST. Um, and like I said, they operate under, sort of kind of considered under my Department of Commerce. So to just kind of give you some gravitas of like, you know, the impact that the SMEP has had on South Carolina, again, we're a big manufacturing state. So, you know, they play a real critical role economically to help keep our manufacturers thriving. And so, I mean, it's even, they have a $3 billion <laughs> impact. Uh, you know, they've worked with over 400 manufacturers, almost uh, 700 jobs created. And on top of that, which, you know, really important as we talk about Industry 4.0 here later, but have helped retain almost 6,500 jobs mm -hmm. in, in the manufacturing space, which, you know, for Rick, what this group has really helped do is serve as that in between to help get him through the door to manufacturers who might be a little hesitant to adopt what he's providing. And so they've been a great sort of buffer introduction point to the right people. Bit of an endorser in that. Yes, way. yes. Yeah. If you're interested in the pursuit of innovation, visit us at scribblesc.com for exclusive video interviews, news from around the state, and a comprehensive list of resources to advance your ideas. That's scribblesc.com. Yeah, so there's a lot of talk about Industry 4.0, this concept of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, and here in South Carolina, with all the manufacturing, uh, it really is a perfect fit. So what Industry 4.0 is about is using data to make better decisions, uh, both on the factory floor um, as well as the executive boardroom. Um, the ability to use data that's being collected to predict and avoid negative outcomes uh, that impact quality uh, and impact revenue, profit. Industry 4.0 really is predicated around the value of prediction. Um, and when we think about how that value is expressed through the supply chain of manufacturers here in South Carolina, there's huge, huge potential, uh, not just for innovation, um, but also for market domination. Um, if you think about taking the value of prediction and, and, and extrapolating that, not just at the, at the end, not, a, not, a, not just at the end process, at the OEM where the car is made, but throughout the supply chain, uh, to create better ingredients, to, be, to create better processes all the way through, um, that benefit could be shared by everybody. Um, and that's what could create a competitive differentiator, not just here in South Carolina, uh, but for American manufacturing in general. When we take a look at the innovations that we're having here at Delta Bravo, we do want to work within the state uh, to extend the technology uh, to places like the University of South Carolina or Clemson or Winthrop. Uh, we helped Winthrop start their data science program uh, with the Abernathys uh, here uh, in Rock Hill. Uh, we'd love to continue to extend the innovation and the, the capabilities that we're creating uh, to help make this a better state 
uh, for artificial intelligence, for manufacturing, for technology and manufacturers. You know, we'd love to take what we're doing here at Delta Bravo and extend this capability to the university system uh, to work with a Clemson or University of South Carolina. Uh, we're working with Winthrop right now. We helped uh, their professors uh, start the data science program over there. Um, that's something that we see, um, you know, we see involvement with the local universities, colleges, high schools um, as a way to increase the viability uh, of not just the students, um, but also of the manufacturing community and the technology com community here in South Carolina. So when you think about, you know, when, when, you know, as an entrepreneur, like my, so my story is wild, all right? So when I got out of college, uh, the first thing that I did is I was a long-term substitute teacher. I was, uh, I was a long-term substitute teacher for 10th and 12th grade English, uh, and I loved it. Um, the only thing I didn't love uh, was the fact that I was making hardly any money, uh, still living with my parents, uh, to which there was no end in sight. Um, I was simply one Camaro away from an awful Italian stereotype. Uh, so for me, I needed to change. Uh, and that was really, you know, what put me on the track, right? Um, is that when I came down, I moved to Raleigh. Uh, I got a job working with IBM. Uh, they gave me the opportunity uh, to learn, um, to, you know, which I did, and uh, very quickly uh, was able to uh, contribute to the team. Um, but one thing that I think when people think of entrepreneurship, um, the thing that they tend to undersell um, is your ability to adapt to change, uh, particularly in technology entrepreneurship. If, if I could give any advice to somebody that's going to start a technology venture, you know, if I can give any advice to a technology startup person, is be ready to change, because that's the world we're living in. Um, and make that change part of your plan. Uh, look forward to it. Um, address change as an opportunity. Um, realize that every time change is required or change is on the menu, it is for other people too. And they may not be as fast or as good at it as you are. Do you, how have you learned to be, to embrace change? I mean, is that something that you just feel you've embraced because it's you are you? Yeah, I, I, I embrace change as a, it's a fact of life. Uh, it's the only thing you can count on. The only thing you can count on in this world is something changing. Uh, so get ready for it, roll with it, embrace it. Um, just because it's not what you wanted uh, doesn't mean that it's not, you know, it's not going to be great. <laughs> you know, um, I always talk to my kids, um, you know, be ready for change, uh, be prepared for it, uh, trust who you are, uh, you know, trust who you are inside and, and your enthusiasm uh, and your preparation. And if you trust those things, you're going to be okay, you know, you're going to be all right. For me, I've learned a couple of lessons. Um, and the biggest one, um, was just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, when I was younger, I, I realized pretty quickly in my mid to late 20s um, that I could process information. I had a level of energy um, that was ahead of most of my peers at the time. Uh, and so all of a sudden, I felt that I had all this potential. And if I didn't exhaust it, if I didn't put the pedal to the metal, uh, I was betraying um, you know, my natural potential. I uh, wasn't living up to who I could be. Um, and so that fueled me to start my first couple of businesses, uh, that fueled me to, to move up and, and learn quickly, uh, it fueled me to seek mentorship, and so it was all very positive. Um, and then, right around the time I was 40 or so, um, it fueled me to make some mistakes. Um, and part of those mistakes was thinking that just because I had all this potential, I could run three, four businesses at the same time. So I went and I started Delta Bravo, I invested in another company, and I invested in a third business. Um, the third business was something that I'd never, I was never involved with before. I had absolutely no background in that business. And I looked at it and I said, well, how hard could it be? It was a Main Street business, uh, direct, uh, direct to consumer business. And I just thought to myself, you know what? This business has been around for 100 years. 
there's plenty of articles I could read. There's plenty of people I could talk to. I could just as quickly make a success out of this as I have anything else. And lo and behold, it has bit me. Uh, so turns out the truth was a lot deeper than that. Uh, the truth is, this business was highly nuanced. Um, hiring was difficult. Uh, there was a capital equipment component that I had no experience in. Uh, there was a customer service component um, that I could do on my own, but I could not scale. Uh, and so very quickly, I found myself overwhelmed. I had a startup that was going gangbusters. Delta Bravo, great. I had another investment in an IT services company that was doing great. Then I had this third investment that all of a sudden was plummeting. It was losing customers. It was losing money. The culture was despondent. Uh, and I had no idea how to change it. And so I eventually had to cut my losses and get out and sell it for a loss, uh, which, which is what's, what's happening right now, uh, today, in fact. <laughs> the, um, I'm not kidding. Like I was on the phone before I came over here, and that's what I was talking about. Uh, so what I learned is that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Focus on what you're passionate about. Focus on what you're good at. Focus on the things that you're going to be proud to tell your children that you succeeded in. And for me, that was, that was a big lesson that, uh, that cost me a lot of money. You know what they say, education's never free. Okay, so let's just take a few minutes to talk about what is Industry 4.0. It's in a lot of headlines today. And of course, for my state, being a major manufacturing powerhouse, it is everywhere. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, I feel like it's one of those words that it takes so many other buzzwords to explain. And it's hard to really appreciate and understand what is actually industry 4.0. So to me, anyways, you know, industry 4.0, there's there's nothing really new about it, in my opinion. You know, we have always been as a human society finding new ways of doing something, iterating on it, making it more efficient. The difference with industry 4.0 that maybe some are finding a little alarming is the the rate of which it's happening in the data, like what Rick talked about, the data available today versus what was available 10 years ago. Businesses just don't always know what to do with it. And so that's why you see innovative products like Rick's coming to market to try and really help businesses navigate this new world of, of data as a new currency, almost. That's another way you hear it talked about. So for Rick, you know, Industry 4.0, because of the product he provides, is very heavy on the data piece of it. But there's also the adoption of new technology in a new tradition, in a, a new technology in a traditional environment. And so that's where, to me, for Industry 4.0, it's a cross-section of both new technology on the floor, equaling better and more accurate data that influences the decisions that are being made at the boardroom level. Um, and so I actually, I feel like, you know, BMW actually just put on a phenomenal event there. I think they even just called it their innovation day. And it was sort of an opportunity for a limited number of us to walk through and sort of see. This is at the Spartanburg plant. Yeah, the Spartanburg plant. And sort of see firsthand in what is in my, they didn't call it an industry 4.0 event. They didn't label it as others like, this is our innovation day. So this was a chance for a handful of us to sort of walk through the facility and see in what, in my mind, really is Industry 4.0. So how they've adopted or been experimenting with new processes in the plant for, again, all of those things that at the end of the day really influence the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll give you a real one of my favorite um, projects we got to see firsthand. It was actually a... Uh, and I think we've talked about this in, in the podcast in the past, it was actually a Fraunhofer Alliance project. Um, and I'm probably not going to do a great job explaining it. So uh, Lane Mears, if you're listening to this, I apologize in advance. Uh, Lane is a great researcher at the CUI car campus with Clemson. And he and his students had been working on a wearable glove for this line worker 
to understand the amount of pressure and tension was being put on a particular um, wiring cable that, that was their responsibility to make sure it was installed correctly. So you can imagine doing this monotony of doing this over and over and over, that this glove is helping understand was there enough pressure put on the 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 cable so that it, it had been inserted correctly right that's pr and so you know there was obviously an innovation in, in, in creating the the material of the wearable itself it right. needs to be breathable and something that is appropriate for that condition and comfortable for the human to actually wear mm -hmm. then right. there's all the sensors that were built into that's, yeah, and then that's of incredible. course the data you know what somebody pushes versus what maybe the next worker is going to do it's just two different things. So then, of course, testing the data and finding where is that sweet spot of accurate and then notifying. Of course, in theory, it's now notifying them when it's not been done right. correctly. So they catch it sooner rather than later. Right. Um, you know so what it reminds me of? The Nintendo Power Glove. <laughs> no, I only say that because it's like that was like an 80s or 90s invention. But like you are describing it now, but applied to learning how a repeated procedure within a manufacturing context is actually working or not, right? Yeah, or like, you know, especially, you know, as the tour went on, we came across, um, they were they had already been experimenting with autonomous, let's just say cargo carriers in the plant itself and no longer necessarily needing an individual operating a forklift. Right. Something as simple as that. That can be done. They have predictive routes, things like that. Right. But it's more about actually even getting the staff you know, your floor workers comfortable with something moving around without like a human that yeah. guiding it. Yeah. And so anyways, of course, inevitably somebody asked. So I, I think they're about to deploy several, um, you know, officially as part of the everyday operation, several autonomous forklifts. And, you know, of course, somebody asked, well, what happened to the forklift driver? And he was like, I'm so happy you've asked me this question. You know, we sent this individual off for, uh, I think it was like six weeks worth of training. And now it's their job to take care of the autonomous Forklift. Okay. They provided that uh, that that what I'll call professional development opportunity for that person, and now that's their job. So they no longer are sitting there. I, I think that's the other thing. I think a lot of people sort of fear, you know, the robots taking over. Right. When in reality, it's just freeing up that individual to be doing something else. Right. Sort of stratifying the labor up a bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I think what's really important. In fact, I even had some fellow colleagues there say, so "I bet you wish you got that on sound." Like. Because I think that's the biggest hurdle, again, as economic development, and maybe even as a society, we think about as we're adopting more and more technology in the everyday, what does happen to that workforce and being prepared for that transition mm -hmm. to help workforce get into different roles and not just sort of made irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, I just love that, that BMW was already thinking that way and offered, well, well yeah, the robot's not going to take care of itself. Um, in fact, I even love, like, this is probably, anytime anybody asks me at Industry 4.0, for my Star Wars nerds out there, in fact, Joseph, this is you, you'll this know is this. You'll, you'll know this visual I'm about to reference. Every even even the Mandalorian, there is anytime there's like you know the, inevitably there's the, the spaceship has to get worked on right? right. There's the crew that comes out. Yep. There's always still a human in charge of all of them. That's right. That's right. The droids. <laughs> the droids. Yeah, Somebody's always in charge of the droids. Right. And inevitably they they don't every, always do the best job. Either. Right. There's yeah. somebody catching it. So I love that even yeah I love that there's lots of articles of how sci-fi has influenced science and vice versa. But even even Star Wars, the robots don't take over. Let's take a step back from the impact Delta Bravo has on industry and the technology that powers the company and talk a bit more about the human side of it all. So I, just like everybody else, uh, got out of college and uh, fumbled, fumbled around for a little bit trying to find uh, what I was into. 
uh, and eventually settled uh, on software engineering. Uh, so in the mid-90s, I worked with IBM uh, on a product called Lotus Notes and kind of went up from there. Uh, got to a point where I started to realize that I could potentially do this on my own. Um, and in 2001, I uh, took my first, first leap into entrepreneurship. I uh, started a company on a $7,500 credit card uh, with no customers and uh, a couple of employees. And you know, that grew successfully and I uh, was able to move on to uh, another challenge in uh, 2006. Uh, got into start do, started doing some turnarounds uh, after that. That was an exciting time. Doing turnarounds is a challenge into itself. You learn a lot. And uh, so for me, uh, I was able to do that and uh, learned a lot about how a lot, you know, learned a lot about people. And then at that point, uh, decided that it was time to uh, get back into my own thing again. Uh, and in 2015, developed the concept for what is now Delta Bravo. Uh, and in 2016, launched the business. Uh, and so we started uh, actually in this very building, uh, in this very room. Uh, and uh, we came down to South Carolina uh, and were introduced to David Warner at the Technology Incubator uh, here in Rock Hill. And David just said, hey, uh, we'd love to have you and we're gonna help you grow. And then within a, a few weeks, uh, was introducing us to people like Comporium and Atlas Copco, who became our first customers uh, that really helped us grow the business. And the world has an interesting way of leading us to the people and places that will change our lives forever. In Rick's case, a cup of coffee led him to the technology incubator. Uh, so we decided uh, in 2016 to start Delta Bravo. Uh, and in doing so, my parents visited the week we decided to start the business. Uh, and my mom wanted to have a nice cup of coffee and a pastry. So I took her to Amelie's, which is five, you know, five stories below where we're sitting now. Uh, we saw the sign for the technology incubator uh, and my mother suggested that I call it. So if you have an Italian mother and you don't listen, uh, it never ends. So I called the technology incubator and uh, was able to meet with David Warner a couple days later. Uh, and within 30 minutes, David had me convinced that South Carolina was where we wanted to start the business. With a couple weeks after that, we had uh, David worked with us to help uh, shore up our business model. A couple weeks after that was walking us into places like Comporium or Atlas Copco, uh, who became, you know, some of our first customers. Uh, today, just a couple of short years later, uh, we're well over 70 customers. Uh, we work with folks like Rolls-Royce, Continental, Toyota, JTEC, the list goes on. Uh, and a lot of our success uh, is directly attributed to our work here with the state. So it's been a, it's been a great journey, uh, really. Although Delta Bravo continued to find support through incubators, business communities, and more, Rick still opted to self-fund the venture. Yeah, so D Delta Bravo is self-funded. Uh, we're bootstrapped, uh, funded by the founders, and, you know, we've built the company purposefully that way. Um, we've all had some experience in starting and selling companies. Uh, we've all worked with venture capital. We understand how it works, uh, and we understood that this is a new area that we needed to build credibility. Um, we needed to find that product market fit. Uh, we needed to understand how to achieve value uh, from, from, from building revenue in a company like this. And so we wanted to do that on our own. Um, and, and we wanted to do that in the time that it would take to, to do that naturally. And what was interesting uh, is that we were moving slower uh, than I had wanted uh, until the pandemic hit. Actually, it's kind of a funny topic, right? So they really say, you know, we were, we were growing at about a 30% year-over-year growth rate, and we started 2020 really hot. But I did have some concerns. I had some concerns that um, we were too horizontal. I had some concerns that we were losing focus. And I had some concerns that we would need more people than we had anticipated to deliver the solution. And so when the pandemic hit, everything stopped. We had about $1.52 million in committed revenue uh, from businesses that were adversely affected by the pandemic. So for us, that revenue disappeared. 
and we had a small team and a couple of customers and a bunch of people that say that now say that they can't pay us. So we decided at that point just to stop, to stop and rethink what we were doing uh, and to make a commitment. Uh, and that commitment was either to put this thing away and stop where we were or go all in. So we decided to go all in. And what that meant for us was rethinking how the technology was built, rethinking our product market fit, rethinking our market message, uh, and rethinking our financial model, uh, which we sat down for two months uh, and did. After uh, we relaunched the product in the fall, we went back to each of our customers and said, this is the new financial model. This is the new agreement. This is the way that it's gonna have to work and this is better for you and it's better for us. Uh, and you know, about 75% of them played ball. <laughs> the other 25% are someplace else. But, uh, and it's been great. Um, you know, the, the changes that we decided to make during that two or three months of downtime during the pandemic um, have come home in a big way. We captured more revenue in the first quarter of 2021 uh, than we did in the entire year of 2020 or the entire year of 2019 for that matter. It's in the first quarter. Um, we're, gonna, we're, we're projected to grow at about a rate of 200% over where we were in 2019. Rick, Delta Bravo, and other companies in the space are still getting a lot of attention from investors, however. But both parties need to be smart about the investment. So there's a lot of buzz uh, around big data, around artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, so what, are, you know, what is the criteria? Uh, what is the criteria to determine you know, whether or not a, one company is a better company to work with as a vendor or as a possible investment opportunity, right? When you think about you know, what qualifies a credible company in this space, I would say number one is customers. Do they have success stories? Number two is the management team. Uh, is the management team have some level of experience in deploying new technologies uh, in new markets with new financial models? Another criteria that I'd look at is the source of the technology itself. Um, does the technology depend on another person's technology in order to execute it? Uh, there's plenty of companies that are building businesses on the backs of source technologies provided by people like Microsoft or Amazon or Google. Can that technology scale appropriately? Um, how, you know, how do you determine the value of that business if it's built on the technology that's owned by someone else? Um, the big differentiator for Delta Bravo is that we've built our own technology using Kubernetes that allows us to scale across any of these platforms. Uh, we can deploy technology on Google platforms, Amazon, Microsoft, or even Cisco, uh, or even you know, data centers that, the, that our customers own. Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, we are built to deploy and scale across any combination of infrastructures that are required to solve the problem in the most cost-effective way for the customer. Um, and that's really, I think that's what you'd look for. I think that if you're gonna invest in this space, you want to invest in a, it's the same rules. So this is, if you want to invest in this space, it's the same rules as a smart investment in any space. You look for satisfied customers, you look for an executive team with a track record, and you look for a company that's got a great culture built around growth, built around accountability. Speaking of culture, Rick has some parting words on team building and more. The route that I took was refocusing from the very beginning um, on what mattered most to me and what mattered most to the folks that are on the journey with me. We all wanted to learn, we all wanted to face adversity, uh, we all wanted to work through that. Um, we all wanted to build a product that was special uh, with customers that we had great relationships with. Uh, we wanted to build a team of adults, uh, people that could work together uh, and go through these things. And so I stepped back and I, and I really focused on that. I pulled my team together and I said, we have purposely built a room full of people here that are smart, 
articulate, communicative, accountable, it would be stupid for us not to attack this together. I've thought a lot about it. I understand that it's my responsibility to lead this. Um, and here's the path that I see fit. Here's the path that I see as a sensible path uh, that is to everyone's benefit. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, we really ruled it through the team. So um, a big part of the culture at Delta Bravo um, is that we want to prepare our business. Well, a big part of the culture at Delta Bravo is preparing the people that work with us to start their own business. Um, we hire a very particular personality type. We're looking for people that are intellectually curious, uh, self-motivated, confident, people that want to eventually maybe do this on their own too. When we have a meeting every Monday morning, we talk about financial health of the business. Uh, we understand what's going on with the product development. Uh, we understand what's going on uh, with potential new customers out in the field sales. We talk about the sales mes messaging. Um, we talk about potential changes to contract language. Uh, ultimately, we focus on making sure that our team is very cross-functional. Um, we hire a personality type that seeks cross-functional input uh, and cross-functional feedback. And when you put that together, uh, it makes it a lot easier to, to get through the, the tough times. But what about when those people leave the nest? I want them to. Um, so as, as far as you know, people potentially leaving Delta Bravo to start their own business, uh, I encourage it. I want them to. I want them to leave the nest and uh, better than they than, better than they found it. Um, you know, I want them to get out there, do their own thing, have an incredible experience, build their own incredible team. And that's something I want to do when this is done. Uh, when this is done, when I'm at a point where um, I don't want to, you know, work 40 hours a week at the same job over and over again. I think that when this is done, um, I do want to teach entrepreneurs. I do want to work with high school kids or college kids, uh, you know, young entrepreneurs to focus on, you know, the foundation of financial literacy. Uh, start there. Um, gain financial literacy for yourself first, um, and that'll put you in a position to, to create financial literacy and growth for a business. Um, I don't think there's enough of that. I have always had a teaching mindset, and what I mean by that is that when you think about a good teacher, you think about someone who has really mastered their craft, right? They, they've really you know, understand all the different aspects that affect success in what they do. They're able to articulate and communicate that. They're able to have patience with the people around them and to, to bring them up to speed in the, at the pace that's, that's required to do so. They're also very fair. Uh, and so when I, I try to attack things from that mindset. And so when I thought about my career you know, and I thought about really understanding and being the best and being able to teach uh, what I was doing, um, I knew that I had to understand different parts of the business. Uh, so what I did is I started taking all the jobs that nobody wanted. Uh, I started taking product manager jobs. I started taking technical writing jobs. I was a designer on products uh, that, you know, that I had not done, done that before. You know, I, I would even do you know, demographic analysis, things like this. And so I, I ended up, uh, for me, it was just uh, the quest to really truly uh, zone in uh, and become the best I could be at my craft. I needed that understanding in order to articulate it, and I needed to go through the struggle of mastering a craft in order to understand the patience required to build a team. My name is Rick Opetisano, and those were my notes on innovation. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review. Join us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Scribble Innovation. And don't forget, sign up for our newsletters. Special thanks to my co-host, Laura McIntosh, the Managing Director of the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. Additional thanks to our team, producer and editor, Hunter Foster, sound engineers, Mike Deering and Samuel Thomas, original music by Matt Honkinen, 
with additional support from Tia Nelson, Sarah Plemons, Ronnie Wilson, Robin Hendricks, and Lexi Williams. We'll be taking a short break in the month of December, but we're not going anywhere. Stay tuned for a special four-part mini-series on funding led by my co-host, Laura, beginning later this month. <laughs>